This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And today we want to talk about a subject, spina bifida. And we're delighted that we've got a board-certified orthopedic surgeon from Medical City Children's Hospital with us, Dr. Sean Kishan. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. For our listeners, they may not know exactly what spina bifida is. Sure. So spina bifida is a congenital anomaly of the spine. It's something that the child is born with because of the way the spine develops in the womb. Typically, the spine develops open on the embryo, and then at about seven weeks of age, the open tube of the spinal cord in the back rolls over and closes itself. Now, in some people, it does not do that. And so when the child is born, the spinal cord actually is exposed on the skin. The commonest area is in the lower back, and it's called a lumbar spina bifida. So there are several types of spina bifida. The most common type is actually something a lot of people walking around the planet have called spina bifida occulta. So the defect, the skin closes over the defect, but the underlying bone has a tiny abnormality where it doesn't fully close. Now, this is typically diagnosed these days during pregnancy with an ultrasound scan that is routinely done. All pregnancies have ultrasound scans done and the spina bifida defect is easily visualized on those ultrasound scans. So as early as the uh, 10 or 12 weeks of gestation or pregnancy, this can be diagnosed. So you mentioned that it can be diagnosed during pregnancy. Are there treatment options available even before the baby is born? Sure, absolutely. So this is a landmark multi-center study that was undertaken. It was, um, it, it was actually, Vanderbilt was the main center where they did this, where they were doing fetal surgery. So at some point in the pregnancy, when it is safe for the mother and the baby to have anesthesia, the baby is actually operated on inside the womb. So the mother undergoes surgery. It's like a cesarean section. The uterus is opened and the pediatric neurosurgeon will go in there and repair the defect. So when the child is born, there is no defect on the back. There's only a scar which heals from being within the womb. So this is a very, very modern and very beautifully done treatment for spina bifida intrauterine or during the fetal life. You know, that fetal surgery sounds very delicate. What would be the risk associated with doing it while the child is in the womb? So there are dedicated centers around the country which are sort of certified and qualified to do this operation. Medical City Dallas Children's Hospital is one of them. We do have a fetal surgery program. The surgeons who do this are trained surgeons who are both certified and qualified in pediatric surgery. That is the branch of surgery deals dealing with operating on children. We also usually have a maternal fetal medicine uh, surgeon as well. As with any surgeries, uh, there are risks involved. The big ones here are potentially the loss of the pregnancy due to the operation. 
However, it's done during a time of pregnancy when generally it is considered relatively safe to expose the mother and the child to anesthetic and to a surgical procedure. You know, let's assume the child is now born and that surgery was not done. What treatment options are available after you're born? So they do the same thing after the child is born, which is to close the defect which is open in the back. Now, remember I said there's several grades of it. The mildest form or the commonest form is where there's normal skin over. And For example, I have spina bifida occulta myself, and I wasn't diagnosed with that until I was about 18 and was supposed to enter into an army medical, you know, an army uh, program in India. But I have no complaints related to that. The most extreme of it is where the spinal cord lies completely open to the back. So if it is in that scenario, the neurosurgeons that operate on children will usually close that defect within the first two or three days after the child is born so that there is no infection. You know, the spinal fluid around the spinal cord does not leak out from the back and it helps the wound close and helps, you know, the child's care because otherwise it's hard for the child to lay on the back, you know, for the parents to take care of diapering and so on. So when that surgery is performed, do people lead a normal life after that or are they complications? So spina bifida is a condition that has a spectrum of clinical presentations. What decides the outcome or the clinical abilities of a patient are the level of the lesion. Meaning, if the bottom end of the spinal cord is involved with the spina bifida lesion, that particular patient has the more normal outcome because the least number of muscles are affected. Remember that the spinal cord sends nerves and receives nerves from all of our body and the lower one is in the spinal cord, say right close to the tailbone, the only function that is affected is that of your bowel and bladder control. But let's say a child has a lesion in the thoracic spine or the spine of the chest. That person is not going to have any function or sensation below, say, the belly button area. So that person is not going to be somebody that can stand and walk. In contrast, a person who has a tailbone spina bifida is likely to be somebody who can stand and walk and perhaps even run. But what is common to almost all of them is that they have very poor bowel and bladder control. So that tends to be a lifelong issue that needs care all through. Are there real other major complications other than what you just described that sometimes you see with spina bifida? Yes, absolutely. So the weakness in the legs is akin to being paralyzed, so the inability to walk. Many of these children have a condition called hydrocephalus, which is basically the flow of the spinal fluid is affected and it starts building up in the brain. It causes the head to become very large as the pressure rises. In fact, most neurosurgeons, when they close the defect two or three days of age, they also do something called a ventriculoperitoneal shunt. It's a tubing that goes from the brain into the abdominal cavity so that it allows the spinal fluid to leak out of the brain into the belly and so not to expand the head and create pressure problems. More commonly, these kids are at risk for having sores because they don't feel anything. So a huge advice that I give all my patients 
is to always check your shoes before you put them on. Even a small grain of sand inside the shoe will irritate your skin and create a sore because they can't feel it. Normally, if we have something in our shoes, we can feel it and we know to take the shoe off and take the you know piece of rock or sand out. But these kids don't have that sensation. So they have big risk for ulceration or skin breakdown. Uh, but a big issue that many of these kids have is something called scoliosis or spinal deformity. So it's sideways bending of the spine in excess of 11 degrees, which is called scoliosis. We're listening here to Dr. Shaum Kishan from Medical City Children's Hospital. We're talking about spina bifida. If you missed some of this conversation, it's on our podcast and our YouTube channel under the human side of healthcare. More on the incredible and delicate treatment for spina bifida next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're talking about spina bifida. Our guest is Dr. Shaum Kishan, orthopedic surgeon at Medical City Children's Hospital. While this is a disease that appears at birth, it can manifest in different ways. In the last segment, we were talking about one of those manifestations is scoliosis. You know, scoliosis. Uh, is a topic that obviously impacts adults and pediatrics. When you're talking about children, is their scoliosis different than adults? Yes, it's very different from adults. So the common causes of scoliosis in adults are typically something called degenerative spine or degenerative scoliosis. Some of them have scoliosis that has persisted from childhood, and the commonest type in childhood is called idiopathic scoliosis where we don't know what the cause is. Now, the kind of scoliosis that children with spina bifida get is called a neuromuscular scoliosis because the reason it occurs is the abnormality in the spinal cord, which is the neuro part, and the weakness in the muscles and so on, which is the muscular part. So neuromuscular scoliosis is what these children have with spina bifida. The idiopathic scoliosis is where there is no attributable cause and that can happen in young children as young as six, seven months of age, although the commonest age in which it happens is between about 10 and 15. For someone, as you say, that is diagnosed with spina bifida and they have surgery or maybe they have it in the womb or after they're born, what is their life expectancy? So in the old days, their lives used to be very short because of the complications that related to their bowel and bladder. They get urinary infections, get infections from their sores. In the old days, they were, I'm talking about a few decades back, they didn't live past their second or third decades of life. These days, they live relatively normal lives. One of the past presidents of the Spina Bifida Association of the United States is actually a pediatric developmental uh, medicine doctor who I know very well. He has himself Spina Bifida. And I sit on the Spina Bifida Association's advisory board. We come up with the, um, you know, the recommendations for care of these patients to minimize complications. These days, they live relatively normal lives as far as life, you know, lifespan. The main issues with them, are lifelong, are related to ensuring that they don't get any infections, taking care of their bladders, taking care that they don't get any sores. And, uh, you know, that takes a little bit of, uh, you know, caregiving and caretaking to avoid having it. You know, I know spina bifida is something that our listeners, especially parents, 
very concerned about. To give you the last word, what would you like to emphasize to our listeners about a spina bifida diagnosis and what they can expect in the future? The first thing I would say is remember to take your folate to any mother or any woman who is in childbearing age and planning to have children. The most important medicine to take is something called folic acid or folate. It's the number one cause, the deficiency of which, which causes spina bifida. So make sure you take your folic acid. The second is to know that, yes, this is a condition that is lifelong, but it can be taken care of. Children can have relatively normal lives. One's expectations have to be adjusted accordingly. Thirdly, when I say expectations, you know, it's every parent wants to see their child being able to run and jump and walk and play and so on. Some of these children are not, are not going to be able to do that. So one has to maximize their ability to get around in the way that is most energy efficient for them. So what I mean by that is if a child is going to get from point A to point B the quickest in a wheelchair, then that is what one must do. There's huge wheelchair basketball tournaments for spina bifida children in the United States. There's a very active sporting committee, you know, community that's there for these children. So they will be active within the constraints of their condition. So do not uh, despair that this is something that's going to limit the child significantly. There are avenues to have that addressed. And lastly, the Spina Bifida Association is a really good place to learn about the condition. It's a fantastic support system place to learn and connect with other people in the community near you to have your children meet others or peers or even older who are successful patients with spina bifida who are negotiating life. These are people that drive, they get around, they do everything pretty much like normal people. The only thing they are unable to do is to stand and walk. So this is a condition, although it has its issues, is compatible with a full life. We're talking with Dr. Sham Kishan, orthopedic surgeon over at Medical City Children's Hospital here on the human side of healthcare. Dr. Kishan, those fetal surgeries, how common are they now? I unfortunately don't have numbers for you, but there's only very few places around the country that do it. It's not something for spina bifida per se. I mean, so first, I'll take that back. The incidence or the, the number of children born with spina bifida has steadily come down over the years. So thankfully, the need for interventions have also come down significantly. So we do fetal surgery here. Some of it is for spina bifida, and I unfortunately am not involved with that, so I don't have the exact numbers. But there are other conditions that are there in the newborn that are helped with fetal surgery as well. So they have, you know, congenital diaphragmatic hernias, which is one of the more common things that people do fetal surgery for these days. You know, I'd imagine when you ask a surgeon, how do you do a fetal surgery, you're going to get a big medical answer. But for our radio audience, as best you can, how are these procedures done? So fetal surgery, the word itself means operating on the child in the womb. So a pregnant mother, typically in the second trimester, which is the second third of pregnancy, is the one who is safe to have this operation and the child is also safe to have operation. So the mother gets anesthesia, general anesthesia, so she's asleep completely with a breathing tube. The abdomen is prepped and then 
just like one would do a cesarean section to deliver a baby, the abdomen is opened, the uterus is opened, and the amniotic cavity, which is the sac which contains the fetal, the fluid around the baby, that is opened, and the baby is delivered out of the womb. The operation is done on the baby, and the baby is placed back in the womb, and the womb closed up again, and the belly closed up again. That is the simplest way of explaining what this operation is. Unbelievable. Steve, did you hear that? I sure did. It was unbelievable. What a phenomenal way to really help people and to do the surgery before they're born. Can you imagine? That is absolutely incredible. The technology that is being used now in these hospitals is unbelievable sometimes. That's one of them right there. Wow. It, it is, yes. It is really incredible, yes. I'd like to jump forward because you mentioned that you have spina bifida occulta and that you had it diagnosed in your late teens. So how does this show up for people that it is not diagnosed as a child, then it presents as an adult, and then what? So it doesn't do anything. So it's, 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 it's an interesting thing. Spina bifida occulta of S1, or the first sacral vertebra, which is the first bone of your tailbone. Our tailbone is made up of five bones, and the top one is S1. So spina bifida occulta of S1 is the commonest incidental finding on a plain X-ray of the spine or the abdomen. Meaning, a patient goes in with another problem and they're getting an X-ray to diagnose some other problem, and this is seen on that X-ray as an incidental finding, unconnected to the problem that the patient went in to have evaluated. It is in itself completely benign. It has no complications. It doesn't have any implication or suggestion that that person is going to have back pain or any of the bowel problems or the bladder problems that the other patients with spina bifida have. So I don't have any issues with my back. I mean, I am a fully functioning, healthy individual. I'm now in my 50s, and I can't say that this has ever come in the way of anything I do. Well, I would imagine for a parent of a teen who suddenly discovers that their teen has this, would be quite a shock. I mean, is this something that parents of teens who discover this should be overly concerned about? Not at all. So this is not something that you go hunting for or anything like that. I mean, this is something, you know, we see children, I see children with back issues all the time. We have actually the busiest scoliosis practice in North Texas. We do, we deal with only spinal deformity in our practice as far as the spine is concerned. So my partners and I, we treat spinal deformities from the newborns all the way into adulthood. And we diagnose things like spina bifida occulta uh, when we are working patients up for other problems. So when I see a patient that comes in with back pain or when I see a patient with scoliosis and we get x-rays and we see this, we don't, so the point I'm trying to make is that spina bifida occulta is not anything that anybody need be worried or concerned about. It's not the cause of any problems in children or adulthood. Spina bifida, something that affects kids and adults, something that is fragile and not fragile. Wow, what a great exploration with Dr. Sham Kishan from Medical City Children's Hospital. And catch the whole interview on our podcast if you missed it, The Human Side of Healthcare and our YouTube channel. Now, when we come back, citizens learning to help citizens in times of emergency. Next on The Human Side of Healthcare. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. You know, in today's environment, many times citizens get involved in accidents, emergencies, and tragedies that occur in our society. We're going to talk about Stop the Bleed today, and this is going to be a topic that can save lives. We're delighted we've got Crystal Perry with us today. She's the Trauma Program Director at Medical City Denton. Crystal, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, Crystal, to help set the stage, can you explain what is Stop the Bleed training? Yes. Stop the Bleed training is a course that was created by a group of healthcare workers, federal government, and law enforcement after the Boston Marathon bombing. In the trauma community, this is a very prevalent topic. The course was created to teach bystanders how to give um, first aid training. So during the Boston Marathon bombing, 27 tourniquets were applied to those injured, and of those 27, they determined that 17 of them were applied by bystanders, those that were there next to the victims before any medical or uh, police were able to reach the patient. So after this event, the group gathered and they determined that we needed to create a course to teach the public on how to use these items, the tourniquets and wound packing, so that they can actually help their um, neighbor, so to speak, in an event. Um, This course is designed for anyone. It does not require any previous training, and it is very simple. It is some techniques to show you how to apply a tourniquet, Um, what items you can use as um, gauze or packing to apply direct pressure on a wound. Many times um, when you think of this course, often people think of mass casualty events. However, this training can be used anywhere. You know, trauma is a national health problem and serious bleeding is responsible for over 35% of pre-hospital deaths. So traumatic events can be anything from a car accident, industrial accident, or intentional acts of violence such as shooting or stabbings or the bombings. Um, The course was created after the marathon bombing. However, you can use this for everyday living if you're around someone that has an injury that results in life-threatening bleeding. You know, I guess to help our listeners, would this be similar to In cardiovascular and respiratory problems, we do CPR as bystanders. So these are bystanders that are trained to help stop hemorrhaging and bleeding in a serious situation. Would that be a good analogy? Yes, that is correct. We um, often pair with our cardiac programs to teach the CPR in addition to this because they can go hand in hand. But it's the same concept where we're teaching the public how to do some first events for the victims before help arrives. So we treat, during the course, we teach them, um, you know, number one is to ensure your safety, make sure that you're in a safe environment, and then how to identify 
what is considered life-threatening bleeding. And then if there is a trauma kit available, the steps to go through to use that kit, or if there's not a kit available, what you can use to improvise with um, everyday items you have on hand. You know, I've always heard that you have to apply a tourniquet correctly. Is that what a lot of this training is? When to use a direct pressure approach, a tourniquet approach, and how to use a tourniquet. Would that be included in this training? Yes, the course is fantastic. On um, It shows some real-life example scenarios that will show you which locations on the anatomy that you would use a tourniquet versus the direct pressure. Because for a tourniquet, you use those more on your extremities, like your arms and legs, whereas the direct pressure you would use in your neck, your shoulders, um, your chest area, that type of thing. And we really go through those scenarios with the students. Um, There is a classroom portion where we do um, a presentation and review the different items, and then we have a hands-on portion where they can actually um, physically hold a tourniquet, apply it to a mannequin, and we review step-by-step the components of the tourniquet and how to safely apply it, um, kind of troubleshoot that type of thing, as well as the direct pressure technique. You know, we talk about a tourniquet, but let's assume that you're a bystander, but a tourniquet is not readily available. How would you suggest we improvise? You always probably have some type of clean cloth that you could use to apply direct pressure to the wound. Um, The class, the formal Stop the Bleed training, it actually discourages the use of the tourniquet, homemade tourniquets, because they want you to, you know, really focus on the appropriate one. However, um, in a situation where you have to decide, you know, what to do right then and there, it's what you feel is best. An example of this was during the Vegas mass shooting in 2017. Many of the bystanders that were there that day actually removed their belts and used those as tourniquets. Um, They raided the T-shirt stand that was there at the concert, and they used those um, T-shirts and passed out to people and helped give, you know, basic instructions on applying what they had available to save people's lives. So even though the class may really focus on the formal tourniquet, there are things that you could use. Um, The reason that they kind of discourage the use of other things is because they're not as effective. However, if it's the only thing you have, then it's obviously better than nothing. You know, when you think in terms of bystanders and they're called on to stop traumatic bleeding, how frequently would you say that happens, at least in your experience working in trauma? We actually see it more often than not. As I mentioned previously, a lot of times this class and tourniquets are focused with mass casualty events where there's big events that get a lot of attention. But you would be surprised how many patients we actually have arrived to the emergency room with an injury where someone, either a bystander or a police officer even, applied a tourniquet. We do a lot of training with our police officers as they may be the first ones there before the emergency medical services arrive. So um, injuries such as car accidents, someone falling and having, you know, hitting 
the right part of your body that causes life-threatening bleeding, and then the bystanders can apply these tourniquets um, that will help make a difference. Um, there's a statistic that says when uncontrolled bleeding can lead to death in three to five minutes. So if you think about from the time that someone is injured, that if they're bleeding uncontrollably, that they could um, potentially die in three to five minutes, that person who is next to them is going to be the person to make the difference. Because even if you call 911 instantly, it still takes minutes to get through the system for, you know, dispatch to uh, send an emergency crew there and then they get to the patient to do an intervention. So that's why this is so important for bystanders to know how to act. To our listeners out there who really, after hearing you, want to get trained and stop the bleed, where should they reference classes that are going to be offered or how can they get involved in the training they need so they can be a bystander that helps someone in need? So in our area, we are very fortunate that the DFW Metroplex has a generous amount of trauma centers, which we all participate in Stop the Bleed training. There's also independent agencies that do the training as well. If you go to the website, Stop the Bleed, all one word, stopthebleed.org, you can actually find a course near you. They have it sorted out kind of by your zip code, and then you use that tool to search one. The courses are updated on a regular basis, so you can check to see if one um, is in your area. And if you don't see one on the website, you can contact, um, I know for sure, as part of the Medical City Healthcare family, all of our trauma centers have Stop the Bleed instructors who routinely teach. Um, Often we do courses for schools and community groups um, such as, you know, the Rotary Club or the uh, a church group so that that's a large group of people at once who can learn the training. You know, Crystal, you mentioned schools. What age do you prefer to start the training? Typically we start about seventh grade just because the topic is a little easier to teach them. Um, However, my 10-year-old daughter has been trained somewhat just because she's been around it enough to see what's going on. So you can teach younger children. Do these classes have to be in person or are they available online? So the lecture portion of the Thought to Believe course is now available virtually. This was something that we created during you know, the high peak, um, we were still wanting to get this topic out to the public. So you can take Stop the Bleed course virtually. If you go to the stopthebleed.org website and use the Find a Course tool, then you can search for online classes. The skills portion of the Stop the Bleed course is still an in-person requirement to complete the course, which we have done some Um, one-on-one for those maybe at higher risk or just wanting to play it safe without being in the group setting. Um, If they do the online uh, portion and then contact an instructor, then they can set up an individual one-on-one time to um, do the skills hands-on portion. This has been Crystal Perry. She's the trauma program director at Medical City Denton. Thank you, Crystal, for the details on this very important life-saving program. If you missed some of this, you can catch it on our podcast and YouTube channel under the human side of healthcare. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the business of healthcare. 
You know, it's such a large employer and economic driver in many of our communities. The importance of healthcare next on the human side of healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. You know, public policy, legislative matters, all impact hospitals. You wouldn't think so in the normal course of business. We've got Catherine Yoda with us. Catherine is the Vice President of Governmental Relations and Legislative Affairs at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm really happy to be here. During the interim period between legislative sessions, what are some of your top legislative priorities? Thank you for asking. Yes, this has been a very intensive interim time between the legislative sessions. Um, you know, unfortunately, we have all very been acutely aware of mental health issues. Uh, Rob Elementary Massacre has been a huge priority with the legislature. Um, just today, they're actually focusing on mental health care. That is incredibly important for Parkland and our patients, whether that's our pediatric patients or our adult population. The second thing I think that the legislature is really trying to address this session is healthcare workforce. As everyone else is aware, with um, job shortages and everything happening related to the COVID pandemic, our healthcare workforce has been strained and a lot of folks are retiring. That's something that the legislature could actually help us with, and that's something that they're going to be studying during this interim. And then thirdly, and this is something, and I put it thirdly, not thirdly as in, of importance, is access to affordable health care. As you know, Steve, we have not expanded Medicaid. There are many of Parkland patients that have no insurance and really need affordable health care. And that goes beyond, I and mean, of course, Parkland does provide the health care, but health insurance is so critical to, to getting that care that they need. Um, there are some interesting committees that I know that we'll talk about later in the, in the broadcast that are looking at access um, initiatives, whether that's Medicaid expansion or some other program that will pr- provide um, health care to low-income individuals. You know, the legislature looks at the entire budget for the state. Are you concerned there could be cuts coming to Parkland next session? Yes. We are always always concerned about cuts to health care providers. Texas, unfortunately, doesn't fully fund Medicaid rates to any health care provider, whether that's a hospital or an individual physician's office or home care. Um, unfortunately, in terms of Texas, it's, it's what, 60 70% of the actual cost to deliver that care. That is something that we will continue to be concerned about in terms of Medicaid rates, which is a responsibility of the legislature. They also provide funding for um, behavioral health and through behavioral health rates and grants and things like that. And, you know, I think we're going to have to be very vigilant um, with the legislature and making them understand how important health care is and, and health care rates are for, for Texas health care providers. You know, Steve, this is not related to Texas uh, or to the Texas legislature, but I'm also incredibly concerned about the congressional cuts that are coming up for Medicare sequestration and Medicare um, 
PAYGO. I know that those are complicated terms, but in reality, it's cuts to Medicare providers, which were Parkland is a Medicare provider, um, coming up as early as July, and that would be a 2% cut on Medicare. And of course, that it, that really directly affects the care that, that healthcare providers can provide their patients and something we should all be concerned about. Our listeners know that Medicaid covers people in the lower economic status, but there's also an integral part called a Medicaid 1115 waiver. Can you explain, and as you look to the future, how will the 1115 waiver impact Parkland? So the 1115 waiver, one of the one of the things that's so critical that we're excited about is through the 1115 waiver, we're going to be able to extend postpartum care for women that are on Medicaid for six months. The previous policy was to only allow it for 60 days. And oftentimes our obstetrics folks to- have told us when if women are going to have problem post-delivery after they leave the hospital, the, the, the problems that arise oftentimes arises after that 60 days and, bef- and within that first year of um, post-delivery. So these are things like mental health treatment that are needed or potential ongoing care with their, their diabetes or their, um, their heart conditions that they may have had post or prior to pregnancy. The idea that we could extend that longer, that health care longer, is so critical for so many women. That can be done through the 1115 waiver, and we are in the state of Texas has asked that. I think programs like that that extend some kind of healthcare access for low-income individuals is so critical and can be done through waivers. So in my crystal ball, 10 years down the road, I'm hoping that we can do more and more to provide access to individuals in need, and a lot of these individuals come to Parkland to seek care. To help our listeners understand, hospitals are going through very tight uh, expense increases, margin erosion. Can you elaborate on why those expense cuts or reimbursement cuts could be something that we're very concerned about? Thank you for asking the question, Steve. You know, a hospital is very similar to a individual family's budget or the budget of a small business owner. We have significant costs that have, have risen over these past few years because of inflation. Our labor costs have, have drastically increased, and I think the numbers are, in terms of nationally, it's like 20%. Our drug costs, our pharmacy costs, our drug costs have increased as well over 20%. And then beyond pharmacy and labor, which are two highest cost drivers in terms of a, of a healthcare system, a hospital, we also have costs related to supplies. And just like everyone else that are trying to buy something from their local grocery store that's costing more money, that is on a broader, bigger scale, a hospital's in, in the same boat. In terms of Parkland, 70% of our patients are uninsured or on Medicaid. So Medicaid rates and cuts to Medicaid drastically harms a hospital like Parkland and, and reduces our ability to provide care for all. You know, not everyone is is uninsured or low income in Dallas County, but everyone can benefit to our from our trauma system, our burn system, and the and the care that we provide for the Dallas County community. Things that are similar that I've shared today are also similar across the other health systems across Dallas County and the state. It's so critical for everyone. Thank you, Catherine. What an excellent answer. You know. 
the other thing, too, from an economic impact in stimulating the economy, especially in North Texas, Parkland is a very large employer. Would you agree? Absolutely, Steve. Parkland employs, I believe, between 12,000 and 13,000 individuals throughout our healthcare system and throughout Dallas County. To give a little plug for your listeners out there that are looking for a job, we really need good employees at Parkland. And you don't have to be a a clinician. You don't have to be a nurse. We look for all types of employees at Parkland, whether that's through the human resources or dietary or security. We have our own police force. We are also always looking for good employees and would really appreciate anyone that's out there looking for a job. You can go to our, our website, parklandhealth.org, and there is a link there that talks about careers and career opportunities um, at Parkland. You know, Catherine, as we look at the care that hospitals provide, the economic impact, I think you've really made some good points about healthcare policy. Any final thoughts on the significance of all hospitals in North Texas. Thank you, Steve, for asking that. One of the things I would like to to share with your listeners is that the issues related to healthcare policy really are important to the entire community. I know we've talked about the Parkland priorities, but really the Dallas community and whether you are someone that is has private health insurance or someone that is uninsured, all of these policy issues policy issues that we've discussed today really affect the care that you will be provided in the healthcare settings and for your workforce. Thank you, Catherine. What a great answer. Thank you for being with us today. And as Catherine said, this is so important. Healthcare policy impacts you, whether you have insurance, you're uninsured, and it certainly impacts the workforce within the employers in North Texas. We want to thank you for being with us today and join us next week for the human side of healthcare.